a quick introduction because we are hosting a guest preacher this morning, uh, Dr. Dan Train from Duke Divinity School. And I got to know uh, Dan, especially um, at the beginning of the pandemic, and we, none of us knew that that was the case. And uh, the, the uh, way that I got to know Dan was he was really kind to let me sit in on one of his classes that he teaches, and he teaches a lot of classes with the Duke Initiatives in Theology and Arts, and they're doing amazing work over there with Jeremy Begbie and others. And uh, he was teaching a class on the theological imagination of Flannery O'Connor. And uh, I, I got to, to sit in a room with a bunch of really smart current students, not like washed up has-beens, and, uh, and, and read these stories, these wild stories um, from this uh, Southern writer who Dan will talk more about. And, uh, and, and then we switched to Zoom, and uh, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to call that phase of pandemic was like the uh, Zoom in your closet phase before we like settled into more permanent. Uh, maybe y'all are still Zooming in your closets. Um, but uh, I, I invited Dan here uh, this morning to speak about Flannery O'Connor as the, the final sermon of this Y'all Saints season. Um, in November each year, we have the season where we um, are, are trying to learn from and accent the, uh, just a small handful of the wide variety of the great cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by, this huge, weird, wild family uh, throughout time and space. And I, I think uh, Flannery is definitely weird and wild, at least in, in the stories that she writes. Uh, this week, I was looking back, um, y'all might do this too, where you're trying to find one uh, document on Google Drive, and it just sends you down a rabbit hole of the archive of things from a long time ago. And I had this this one note when um, when I was working for the Gathering Church prior to Oak Church in, in early 2014, and we were looking for building spaces, and and we had come and looked at a space in Lakewood. And uh, you know, long story short, uh, some of those uh, looking at at spaces and imagining ministry here. Um, became the the seed in, of of Oak Church, and um, and we, we had this group doc that everyone kind of commented on their impressions of of uh, doing ministry way out kind of in Chapel Hill that everyone commuted to, and then imagining ministry here in Lakewood, and and um, I was kind of at the time. Um, one of the few voices I could begin to imagine it. And, and, and I quoted Flannery O'Connor. This is kind of arrogant that I did. Um, but I, floated, uh, I quoted Flannery O'Connor in, in just my comments, in my impressions on this storefront space that we were looking at. And I said, Flannery O'Connor said, somewhere is better than anywhere. <laughs> and, and so and I, she was saying that to her writing students about really drilling into uh, the particularities and the peculiarities of a space, and that's some of the work that we've been up to here for, for the last seven plus years and hope to be up to for a while into the future. So I'm going to invite Anna Gasmarian to come and read our scripture from John 6, and then uh, Dan will come forward. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, 
where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the word of God. Good morning. So the first thing you need to know about Flannery O'Connor is that she loved to collect strange birds. Despite receiving prestigious awards for her stories and a growing reputation as one of the most important fiction writers of her time, O'Connor loved to say that her most famous achievement came when she was five or six years old. Word had spread that the young Mary Flannery had trained a chicken to walk backwards, and the British Pathé News Agency sent a cameraman to film her and her chicken in her backyard in Savannah, Georgia in 1932. You can actually find this on YouTube. And you'll see that it must have been either an exceptionally slow news day or the creators knew what TikTok was before anybody else did. <laughs> As a child, O'Connor would not only walk her chickens on a leash, but she would dress them in clothing she had made for them herself. But this was only the beginning of a lifetime of collecting various fowl, and the more odd or more unique, the better. In one of her essays, she explains that although I had a pen of pheasants and a pen of quail, a flock of turkeys, 17 geese, a tribe of mallard ducks, three Japanese silly, silky bantams, two Polish crested ones, and several chickens of a cross between these and the Rhode Island red, I felt a lack. <laughs> Eventually, O'Connor filled this lack by purchasing a peacock family a papa, a mama, and four seven-week-old peabitties. As you might imagine, these quickly multiplied, and O'Connor soon had at least 40 peacocks running around her mother's small farm in Milledgeville, Georgia. Despite the fact that her mother threatened to murder them every single time they ate her um, flowers and, and made these crazy loud noises, O'Connor managed to keep them there for her life. And if you go visit the family's farm in Milledgeville today, you can meet two peacocks who are named after characters from one of O'Connor's stories. That's my daughter Amelie about eight years ago. The second thing you need to know about Flannery O'Connor and that you've probably already started to figure out is that she was herself a bit of a strange bird. For starters, she was raised as a Catholic in a very Protestant South. And even though she had Southern aristocratic family connections, 
she was always someone who pushed against Southern manners and niceties. It was O'Connor who would always ask the improper questions or would say things that you shouldn't quote, say in quote-unquote polite company. O'Connor cared far more about speaking the truth than whether she was making people uncomfortable. So O'Connor's classmates, her teachers, and even her family never really knew quite what to make of her. And this is true about her career as a writer. For those in the literary world, O'Connor's stories about really extreme characters situated in the Protestant South were puzzling, to say the least. And perhaps most of all, they couldn't understand how these stories were written by a woman, much less one who would also say that I write these stories the way I do because I'm a Catholic, not in spite of it. Many of her readers in the literary world assumed that O'Connor was making fun of Christians. But as she spent the rest of her life trying to explain, they had missed the point altogether. It was these extreme and strange creatures who actually understood not only the radical consequences of the gospel, but the equally unbelievable good news of God's grace. In O'Connor's stories, it's the ones who act quote-unquote normally, those who are well-adjusted and have read lots of books who are most incapable of not only receiving grace, but of recognizing their own sin and the devil's work in their midst. There's a famous story that O'Connor tells about a time she was at a dinner party in New York. And at one point, the host mentioned rather condescendingly that she thought that communion, the Eucharist, was just a nice symbol. In typical O'Connor fashion, she spoke up from a corner where she had been mostly observing and said, well, if it's just a symbol, to hell with it. <laughs> Later, she explained, that was all the defense I was capable of. But I realize now that this is all I will ever be able to say about it outside of a story, except that the Eucharist is the center of existence for me. All the rest is expendable. At the same time, Christian readers were even more confused by O'Connor and also never quite knew what to make of her. They simply couldn't understand how O'Connor could have such terrible things happen in the stories and still call herself a Christian author. But O'Connor bristled at the assumption that just because she was a Christian, her stories should be morally uplifting and encouraging. Again and again, she refers to examples from the Bible that are anything but encouraging. And O'Connor saves some of her harshest words for the supposedly Christian art of her day. For O'Connor, one of the biggest problems of modern Christianity was that not only had it stopped believing in the work of the devil, but that it no longer read the Old Testament. So whatever else their failings, O'Connor's heroes, both in life and in her story, are always those who know that a belief in a God who covenants with God's creation is quite literally a matter of life and death. To call it simply a personal preference or general spirituality was already for O'Connor to choose death. In a world which simply couldn't comprehend God's unrelenting pursuit of God's chosen people, in the context of both a secular world and a Christian culture which had so domesticated God's radical self-giving activity to a tame 
and nice, precious moments kind of Jesus, O'Connor offers instead in her stories pictures of grandmas who recognize their kinship with serial killers just as they are about to be murdered. Or children who are baptized into the family of God even as they are drowned. Or landladies who glimpse the irrational economy of God's gift while being gored in the heart by a bull. I could go on, but the point is that O'Connor's stories, her strange stories and her somewhat strange life can be a way for us to reflect on the wonderful strangeness of those whom the church calls saints, to reflect on both their unique witness to the strangeness of God's unrelenting love in Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, and to reflect on the saints' ongoing call to us to live out the strangeness of our discipleship as the body of Christ for our time. I should also add that the majority of Connor's life as a writer was affected deeply by a disease called lupus. Her father had died young from the same disease, and just as she was gaining notice as a young up-and-coming author, Flannery became seriously ill by a disease that the doctors didn't understand very well at the time. It's treated very differently nowadays, but at the time it was incurable, and Flannery underwent a series of painful experimental treatments over the rest of her life. Those treatments made it so that O'Connor depended on crutches for most of her life. And though she was an independent and strong-willed as ever, O'Connor often joked about her situation as she was in and out of hospitals. If you read her letters, though, it's clear that this painful experience influenced O'Connor in really important ways, even if it's hard to say just exactly how. I think it's fair to say that her daily pain made her acutely aware of her need of God and of others. Perhaps that was an especially painful lesson from somebody who was so independently minded. And it also seems to be that because she knew her disease was incurable and that an early death was likely for her, this gave her a kind of urgency and clarity about her own vocation as a Christian artist. O'Connor died at the age of 39. So now that you know just a little bit about the wonderful strangeness of Flannery O'Connor, I want to tell you briefly about my favorite O'Connor story, because I think it can help to illustrate the genuinely Christian imagination which is at work in both her art and in her theology. My hope is that it might also help us hear again that gospel story we've just read this morning about the feeding of the 5,000. This is, after all, the one miracle that appears in all four gospels. But I'm guessing that for many of us here today, including me, part of the problem is, is that we're just already too familiar with this story. It no longer surprises us in the ways that it could and should. And my hope is that the witness of O'Connor and others like her can bring new life to this story and the whole of scriptures as they become once again a part of our living story as the people of God. O'Connor's story called The Displaced Person is by far the longest of the short stories. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but one of the reasons I think this story is especially relevant for us today is that it tells the story of how a very small, 
isolated farm in the rural south is entirely upended by the arrival of the displaced persons, a family of refugees from Poland who are escaping the Holocaust. Before they arrive, the locals on the farm imagine the displaced family as almost literally aliens arriving from another planet. But pretty soon, it becomes clear that the immigrant father will be a huge asset to the farm. He has skills as a mechanic and a farmer, and in contrast to the local laborers, he works quickly and efficiently. At first, Mrs. McIntyre, the owner of the farm, is delighted to see that her farm is finally flourishing. While, as you might imagine, the local family who was already on the farm begins to resent the strangers and to view them as a threat. But eventually, even Mrs. McIntyre, the one person who is clearly benefiting the most from the way the displaced person is transforming her farm, also turns against the refugee family. Even though it makes no economic or business sense for her, she decides that she needs to get rid of the family when she finds out that the father has been trying to arrange a marriage between a, rel a relative of his back in Poland and one of the black farmhands. For Mrs. McIntyre, the idea of an interracial marriage is so outrageous that she throws out all other common sense and starts plotting to get rid of the very person she had just a few days earlier called her savior. As you might imagine, things only get worse from here. And I won't spoil the story for you, but I think I can say that one of the things the story does is to make a very clear connection between the somewhat abstract but obvious evil of the Holocaust far away in Europe and the racism that is much closer to home on this small, isolated Georgia farm. The power of the sinful, racist imagination is so great, in fact, that it is stronger even than Mrs. McIntyre's constant anxiety about making the farm profitable. We might even say that the economy of racism, rather than a market or a capital economy, is revealed as the true force that governs this farm. It's also really important to acknowledge here that this power seems to have held some sway over O'Connor herself. Despite the anti-racism at work in her stories and her rejection of racist language in other places, evidence has emerged in recent years showing that O'Connor herself, on some occasions, used the same hateful racist language as the majority white folk in her Georgia community. Perhaps, especially in this context of an All Saints sermon series, we need to acknowledge this rather than avoid it if only in this case to better appreciate the full grasp of how the sin of racism can totally dominate not just the characters in O'Connor's story, but the story of our own time. And much like in our own time, one way that Mrs. McIntyre begins justifying her otherwise totally unjustifiable decision to get rid of the dis displaced persons is that she takes up the language others had been using to describe the foreigners as extra. They don't belong here, she says again and again. They're extra. He's extra. He doesn't fit in. He's extra, and he's upset the balance around here. Or again, I don't find myself responsible for all the extra people in the world. 
As if to underscore this point, the narrator at one point says, all her life she had been fighting the world's overflow. What this begins to suggest, I think, is that is the way that an imagination of scarcity, this, this sense that we don't have enough, is intimately linked to the racist and violent economy which dominates this small farm. So if you get a chance to read or reread this story, I'd encourage you to notice how the story in clever ways identifies the displaced family with Jesus and perhaps reminds you of one of Jesus' most difficult claims. Whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And I'd encourage you to ask yourself not only how does knowing Jesus transform the way I view and treat those who have been marginalized or displaced, but how does knowing those whom society has called extra deepen my understanding of who Jesus is? There's a lot more we could say about Christ's figures in this story. But today I want to close by drawing your attention to a different meaning of extra or overflow or excess that I think is central to understanding the story. Looming in the background of almost every page is the character of the farm's peacock. And his presence only further emphasizes the locals' inability to appreciate things they can't comprehend. They describe it as just a pea chicken or just another mouth to feed. At one point, the story describes a character staring directly at the peacock's tail that was full of fierce planets with eyes that were each ringed in green and set against the sun. She might have been looking at the map of the universe, but she didn't notice it. Like with the displaced persons, the peacock is just another mouth to feed, another drain on scarce resources and almost totally invisible to the imagination of the locals. But the only character in the whole story who's capable of noticing this extraordinary bird is a priest who visits regularly to check on the displaced family and to try to teach Mrs. McIntyre doctrine. He comes across as a bit ridiculous at times, but he's clearly the only one who's capable of appreciating the bird's totally gratuitous excessive beauty. At one point, the narrator describes the priest staring, literally transfixed at the sight of a tail of small pregnant suns floating in a green gold haze. After an awkward silence, the priest says, Christ will come like that. And it's this vision of extra or overflow that I think provides a helpful contrast to the death-dealing holocaust that takes place on this small farm. It depends on a theology of creation which understands gratuity not as merely arbitrary or pointless, but rather as a gift. It understands excess not as wasteful or unnecessary, but as an abundance which ought to undermine the many zero-sum economies we, have it, we inhabit. And I'd suggest that gratuitous excess is finally brought home to the readers in two concluding images of this story. First, the, an image of the priest feeding a dead man 
the Eucharist, communion wafer, as he offered him the last rites. And then again, as the priest sits by the side of an ailing and abandoned Mrs. McIntyre, explaining the doctrines of the church after he has just fed some breadcrumbs to the peacock. For the priest, none of these are just another mouth to feed, even though by most utilitarian, biological, and economic measures, these acts would be considered wasteful or totally pointless. But the kind of extra the priest makes present here is in fact the antidote to the violence we see elsewhere in the story. In radical contrast to economies which operate on fear of difference or the unknown, which continue to stoke our worries that we will never have enough, which are unable to see how creation itself reflects a kind of map of the universe, the priest's inexplicable gesture offers us instead an invitation through Christ's death to a full participation in the banquet that is the life of the triune God. This banquet is pictured quite literally in the gospel story that we read today where Jesus notices the needs of those who have come to hear him. He challenges his disciples to address the need, but upon taking inventory of their resources, they know they don't have nearly enough. Five loaves and two fishes for 5,000 people? It's a joke, right? That's me. It's exactly what I would say. But Jesus, as he often does elsewhere in the Gospels, not only takes what is there, blesses it, and provides enough so that everyone is satisfied. He asks them to take the time to gather up all the leftovers, all the overflow, all the extra. And as if to make sure that they fully understand the nature of the joke, they gather up exactly 12 baskets. One basket full for each of the disciples. I think this story, which again all four Gospels tells us, should point us like the displaced person and the peacock in O'Connor's story to the abundance of God in the life of Christ by the gift of the Holy Spirit. From turning of the water into the best wine anyone had tasted to the receiving of a costly, excessive gift of perfume poured on his feet by a woman who understood the true cost of her sin and thus the true gift of God's grace, Jesus is constantly upending our notions of what extra means. For Christians, one way we remember this is through the mystery and excess inherent in the celebration of communion. And I think this is why O'Connor insisted that as both an artist and a Catholic, the Eucharist was at the center of her existence. For O'Connor, mystery within the Christian faith was not a problem to be solved or some kind of empty hole that just needed to be filled. Rather, mystery was an invitation into an ever-deepening encounter with the overflowing abundance of the triune God. And she thought that art had a unique ability to help us encounter that mystery, to be ourselves transfigured by coming, by encountering those things which exceed our comprehension. And that's why in the last novel she wrote with a um, ends with a vision of all those who have hungered for and tasted the bread of life who is Jesus and they're sitting 
on the same hillside as the 5,000. For O'Connor, these are the saints who have witnessed firsthand the excess and the overflow of God's self-giving. These are the saints who know their own capacity for sin and that nothing on earth will ever satisfy their hunger. So thanks be to God for those among us who by their own extraordinary lives and extraordinary vision can help us to see once again the wonderful strangeness of the triune God who never stops being extra. And thanks be to God for those strange birds among us, sometimes called saints, who in their own unique, particular ways reflect God's image and call us to be made one in Christ Jesus. Amen.